I'm going to ask my brother Rick to come up here and lead us in a time of prayer just to pray for our church. We'll ask him to ask the Lord on our behalf to make us all listeners and to open our hearts. Let's do that. Pray with us, please. Father God, we are so grateful to be your children. And often I move through my days and I take that for granted. And I pray today we'd be able to still our hearts by your strength and your power, that in this place there truly would be a realization of how deep and wide your love is. And I'm always reminded, Father, with the mountains around us, that you surround us in much the same way. You love us even when we don't deserve it. And in fact, when we're pretty ridiculous, you keep loving us. So I pray today that that truth would trickle into the deepest places in our hearts and that we would leave rejoicing because of who you are and what you're doing in us. Open our minds to receive this message, and we pray that it would bear great fruit for your kingdom. We ask it all in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Rick. Mondays at noon, Tina and I typically have a date. We gather together for lunch. She has an hour off, so we usually have about 55 minutes to spend with one another. It's one of our points of connection, oftentimes in the middle of busy weeks. And usually it's, it's just a wonderful joy when the two of us get together and we get to talk about the morning, we get to talk about what the rest of the week looks like, and we, we tend to order some things during that hour with one another. This past Monday, it took on a bit of a different feel because we both went to Pizza Hut with a burden on our hearts. It was the same burden, we just didn't know the other one was carrying it. For Tina, it began on Sunday night. For me, it started on Monday morning. The burden came for both of us from Facebook, of all places. She was scrolling through some of the posts on Sunday night and looking at what a, a number of our friends had shared. I didn't do that until Monday morning, and, and we saw the same things. It was disturbing, to say the least. A lot of the posts that we saw came from folks that we have known for a long time. Some friends, some family members. For Tina, it was really a heartbreaking night because she saw some things a family member had posted and it was a tipping point for her with him. And I'll tell you a little more about that in just a few minutes. But for both of us, we looked at some people that we had known to be leaders in the church for a long time. Some of them that we had gone to Bible college with. And now all of a sudden on Facebook, they were posting things that we would have never in a million years guessed them to post. We would not have thought that people that we knew to have a strong relationship with Jesus Christ would publicly say the things that they were saying. We both grabbed the burden from that privately, and then together we shared it with one another. Part of what is so heartbreaking about that is their very next post may very well share something of their faith with everybody that ever looks at it. So in one post, you have people that are saying things offensive to the things of God, and in the next post on Facebook, which is such a huge part of our world, in the very next post, they're exalting the relationship that they have with their Lord and Savior. How in the world does that work? It makes absolutely no sense. So as we were talking about all of these different things, and both of us just falling a little, little deeper and darker into the burden, I came back to my office and started rooting around in some books looking for some things that I had seen a, a good long while ago, particularly some writings from a philosopher named Michael Novak. 
I was going through uh, all the books on my shelves and finally remembered that it was a fellow named John Ortberg that had introduced me to the writings of Novak. And I found the book and put it down in front of me and, and just began to go through it, reminding myself of how true his teaching is. Michael Novak says that every person has three types of convictions in their lives. Every person, doesn't matter who you are, you have three different types of convictions. The first conviction is what he refers to as your public conviction. Now, in Novak's teaching, he would say that your public conviction is what you want everybody else around you to believe. Whether you believe it or not, it is the perception that you're trying to cast. His illustration would look like this. There are a lot of politicians in our world that will stand up to give public speeches, and in their speech, they'll say, the United States of America is the greatest country that God ever created. They want everybody to believe that they believe that, when in reality they don't, because they're trying to disassemble this country that they would call the greatest country God ever created. It is simply a public conviction, that which they want other people to believe. That's what they want them to see when they look at them. But there's no truth behind it. There are no roots within it. Now, we could easily illustrate it this way too, just kind of funny. Fellas, you know what public convictions look like. Your wife comes to you. She's bought a new dress. She wants you to see it. She has it on. Stands in front of me and she says, Do you think that this dress makes my hips look big? Your public conviction better come out of your mouth. And it has to sound like this. Honey, I'm looking at you in that dress. I don't even know that you have hips. You look so good in that. that. That's just beautiful. That's a public conviction. There are biblical illustrations of that as well. Let me take you to the Gospel of Matthew. I'll show you one of them. Matthew chapter 2. Magi have gone to worship Jesus. They're trying to find him. On their way to find the, the baby, they stop and visit with King Herod. They announce their intention and their desires and King listens to them, and they know that he's somewhere in the, the neighborhood or the general vicinity of Bethlehem. So this is what Herod says to the Magi. Chapter 2, verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me. Now listen to this. So that I too may go and worship him. Herod had absolutely zero desire to worship Jesus. He wanted to kill him. But this was his public conviction. Let me know where he's at so that I can go and worship him. You see it all the time. You really do. Even within the church, you see this very thing. People that say they have a desire to worship, when in reality, that's not even on their screen. So Novak says that we have these public convictions, and then he would teach that we also all have private convictions. Private convictions are those things that we really do believe. Deep within us, we believe them, but there's a wrestling match between what we personally believe and publicly what is seen. And it is that very thing, a wrestling match. Sometimes we're stumbling across our private convictions. We want people to know what we believe, but certain situations and circumstances in life just trip us up. And the private convictions will come out all the time when we're talking, but our lifestyle, our choices... Our actions don't always measure up to what we have said. It's illustrated beautifully in the idea of prayer. A lot of people say that they believe in prayer, but when push comes to shove, prayer is the absolute last thing they ever do. 
They'll say that they believe God answers prayer, but they never specifically ask God for anything. Or they hedge their bets by asking God for something and then following it up with statements like this. If it's your will, Lord, please do that. That's hedging your bets. That's the wrestling match of private convictions. Biblically, it might look like this. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14. We'll start in verse 27. Speaking to his disciples. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now that's a private conviction. Peter believed, he really believed, that nothing could cause him to fall away from the Lord. And then life happened that very night. And his actions did not match his conviction. A lot of you know exactly what that's like. You have wrestled through private convictions. Maybe today you're wrestling through private convictions. How do I get to a place where my actions match my words? Well, then finally, Novak would say that we all have core convictions. Every one of us has core convictions. These are the things that you believe in the deep parts of your heart. You believe these things and nothing will ever cause them to compromise. Core convictions can happen on any number of different levels in your life or any number of different dimensions. You have core beliefs, things that you are willing to fight for, things that you are willing to go to war over. I told you just a few minutes ago that on Facebook, one of the things that had really burdened Tina this past week was something that a a cousin was posting on Facebook. It was a direct affront and insult to her core convictions about Christ. So finally, she'd had enough, and she decided that even though this was a family member, she was not going to put up with the things that he was posting showing up on her wall on Facebook. So she unfriended him. Somehow, he found out that she had unfriended him, and he went on a Facebook rant about a cousin that would unfriend him, called her all kinds of different things on Facebook, out there for everybody to see. And, and that was really bothering Tina yesterday. She was like, what? I can't believe this. How in the world am I supposed to answer? At midnight last night, she's going through the book of Proverbs trying to figure out what to do. Now, me and my flesh, I'm saying, well, let's get back in the fight. And I'll respond for you. That was in my flesh. There's some things that need to be said here because this guy has insulted my wife. I've never seen him in the 27 years that I have known Tina, but I could have choked the life out of him last night at about 11 o'clock. And so at midnight, she's looking through the book of Proverbs trying to figure out what to do about this. And Solomon would say, don't you dare get involved in an argument with a fool because it'll just make you look foolish. So she said, I'm going to do absolutely nothing about this. Very proud of my wife as she was trying to calm me down. And she's saying, right here, the Bible says, amen. I want you to hold on to that, especially in the realm of Facebook, because folks, a lot of people get involved in those types of arguments. They get involved in in allowing other people to poke them and to, to get them going on something, even within the realm of your faith. And when you respond, you're going exactly against what the Bible says. Don't get in an argument with a fool because it's only going to make you look foolish. The wisest man to ever live, King Solomon, laid that out for us. It's pretty pointed, and that's good medicine. 
But her core convictions were insulted, so she unfriended the guy. Core convictions are those things that we believe with all of our heart. They are instrumental in who we are, and they are the very definition of our beliefs. You have core convictions. I have core convictions. We might be able to equate them like this. This is the best thing I can come up with. How many of you play golf? There's a few golfers in here, people that are willing to test their faith and see how closely they can walk with Jesus. There's a few golfers in here. Golfers understand the term muscle memory. You will practice your swing over and over and over again. Ray, you know what muscle memory is. Practice your swing over and over and over again so that when you step up to the ball, you will swing exactly the way you're supposed to and the ball will go exactly where you want it to go. I am not a golfer. I am a hacker. I do not have any muscle memory whatsoever in my golf game. So I never, ever, not ever practice my swing because I know that the best swing I'm going to have is going to happen before I step up to the ball. So I'm saving everything I got for right there because I have no muscle memory. Core convictions are equated to muscle memory. They're your default settings. You're going to do the same thing every time based on your core convictions. And within your faith, it's expressed the same way. You're always going to operate within your core convictions. Here's an example. We'll go to the book of Acts. In the early day of the church, the apostles were preaching in all kinds of different places, and oftentimes that message was offensive to other people, particularly the Jews in the ruling class, the Pharisees. So they would attack the apostles, the disciples, in all kinds of different ways, trying to silence them, oftentimes involving the legal system. They wanted the courts to shut them down. The courts sometimes would respond, more often than not, throughout the book of Acts, the courts would say, this is a religious matter, you deal with it. And so the Sanhedrin, the ruling class, would deal with it. Well, in Acts chapter 5, a fellow decided, one of the Pharisees decided, that he would speak on behalf of the apostles after they had been arrested solely for preaching the gospel. So he got up and he, he spoke on their behalf, in essence saying this, let them preach. If what they're saying is true will know. But if what they're saying is false, they'll fall off the page. So don't worry about it. It was pretty good wisdom. It really was. So the Sanhedrin decided to let them go. But listen to what happens. This is Acts chapter 5, verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they decided they would turn them loose, but not until they beat them up. So they had them flogged. Then they let him go with this command. Don't you dare utter another word about Jesus Christ. Don't open your mouth and tell anybody about him. Listen to what happens next. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that cool? That's their muscle memory. Fine, flog me, warn me, threaten me, whatever you want. My core conviction is such that I must preach. That's a core conviction. Their actions were matching their words. And that's what core convictions do. They line up our actions and our words. In our faith, it is necessary for that to happen. In our walk with Christ, it is necessary for us to experience that type of alignment so that our core convictions are dictating everything we do. I want you to see how James teaches this in his book. Go with me to James chapter 2, would you? 
James chapter 2, verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see, listen to this, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. That is tough biblical teaching. There are a lot of people that would like to take a pair of scissors and just cut that passage out of their Bible and throw it away. There are a lot of preachers that when they preach the book of James would like to skip right over this passage because this is tough biblical teaching. And I can tell you as a preacher, there can be a lot of temptation to want to jump past things like this. But if you're going to preach the Word of God and you're going to preach and teach from a book of the Bible, you have to preach it in its entirety and you can't just pick and choose. Or skip over the things that are uncomfortable for you or for your listeners. You have to get right into it. So, thank you. So, we're going to get into this passage as difficult as it is. And it may be somewhat convicting. I hope it is. We're going to explore it and see what the Bible has to say for us in the realm of our convictions. And I want you to ask yourself all the way through this now. Is Jesus Christ one of my public convictions? I just want people to believe that I believe in Him? Or is He one of my private convictions and I'm wrestling through it, trying to line up my actions with my beliefs? Or is Jesus really a core conviction in my life? Now as we explore this from James chapter 2, there's a lot of different directions we could go. We could, if we had the time, go back and look at Abraham's life. James would say he's the perfect example of what we're looking at. We don't have enough time to do that. If you want to explore Abraham's life, you'll find it in the book of Genesis. Read Abraham's life and you'll see exactly what James is talking about. We could look at Rahab the spy and see why it is that James would call her out as an illustration of this whole point, but we don't have enough time to do that. If you want to read about Rahab's life, go to the book of Joshua. You'll find her story there and study it in its entirety. You'll see an amazing lady. You really will. What she chooses to do is pretty incredible. So since we don't have time to look at Abraham's life and we don't have time to look at Rahab's life, what I want us to do is grab hold of a biblical word out of this passage and we're going to explore that. It's found in chapter 2, verse 24. Read this with me again. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. The word we're looking for here is the word justification. It's a big biblical word and one that a lot of people don't spend enough time looking at, but it has great doctrinal teaching for our lives. Here's a definition of it. Justification is the act of God by which he declares the believing sinner righteous on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. Justification is a work of God. It is an act of God, and it is complete. It is, in its entirety, it does everything for you that it needs to do. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you. When you accept that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he died for you, justification happens. You are declared righteous before God, and that never goes away. 
God will never, ever, not ever remove that from you. You are justified for all of eternity because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's enough. The cross of Jesus Christ is enough. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now here's the other side of that teaching. Let's flip the nickel over. Inasmuch as God will never leave you, you can leave him. You can walk away from it. You can choose to say, I don't want to do anything else with my faith. I don't want anything else to do with Jesus. You can walk away from it. Does that change the fact that Jesus did what he did on the cross? No. What it changes is how you have accepted it. And you can choose to walk away from your faith. That's the way that works. Now that can be difficult teaching for a lot of people as they look at that and they think, gosh, I I just don't get that. Well, James wants us to see that this alignment is necessary. It is necessary between your words and your actions so that you never have to worry about that. Listen to it again, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Your actions come into play here. They're necessary. Interestingly enough, when people really embrace justification and the grace that was necessary to bring it about, it's not a very far stretch before they say, I can live any way I want, do anything that I want, and I don't have to worry about it. They begin to remove the absolutes of the Bible and say that those apply to other people or that's a teaching that somebody else has to pay attention to doesn't matter to me. No, you have to pay attention to it. So they'll ask questions like this. Can you just give me a list of do's and don'ts? The Old Testament was full of do's and don'ts and lists, and it didn't save anybody. The Old Testament was all about how we would control our actions. It was external teaching. The New Covenant, when Jesus came, was all about changing us, transforming us from the inside, changing our attitudes. So it isn't enough for us to say, here's a list of do's and don'ts, now live by this. That's going to do nothing but get you in the realm of public and private convictions. Core convictions are changed when our attitudes are changed, when we're transformed from the inside. And the way it becomes evident to everyone around us is by our actions. Now some of you might say, that that just seems like a contradiction, Phil. I've read other parts of the Bible like Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 and this doesn't seem to match up to what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. And then if you really think about it, these are some argumentative people in our world, then that means that the whole Bible contradicts itself all the time. I love it when people tell me that the Bible contradicts itself. I really do. Because you know the Bible never contradicts itself. Not ever. And when somebody says to you that the Bible contradicts itself, all they're really doing is demonstrating their ignorance of the Word of God. That's it. So when somebody says to me, the Bible contradicts itself, I love to say, well, why don't you show me? Let's get into that. More often than not, what you find when they say this is a contradiction is just deeper teaching. You just have to get deeper into the Word of God. It's not a contradiction. It's just taking you deeper in your relationship with Christ. Let's get into it. I'll show you one of those as we look at this. Now, I want you to imagine I've got somebody sitting in front of me arguing with me about James chapter 2, verse 24, saying your actions don't matter. They don't measure up against some other passages of Scripture. Let's get into it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. That's where my argumentative friend wants to take me, so we'll go there. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, Not by works, 
so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this is what people will say, this argumentative individual sitting in front of me. We're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. But remember, we're dealing with this word justification. So here's what I want you to know. It is through faith that we are justified before God and declared righteous. It is through works that we are justified before man and that righteousness is demonstrated. Now listen to that again. It is through faith that we are justified before God and declared righteous. It is through works that we are justified before man and that righteousness is demonstrated. That's where the core conviction and the alignment becomes obvious to everybody else around us. I'm actually operating within what I believe. We would find from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, that that's necessary. Verse 10, that's necessary. James chapter 2, verse 24, that's necessary. Because without it, without that type of conviction, your faith is useless and dead. See why this is difficult teaching? It really is. But it is necessary teaching. So I want to show you two areas that we participate in that actually deal with this work idea that will show the justification that we have received, but it demonstrates it to man. The first one may be somewhat surprising. We're going to participate in it in just a few minutes. We refer to it as communion or the Lord's Supper. Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you've been around the church very long at all, you've heard people do communion meditations out of this passage. Oftentimes very good meditations. More often than not, they'll read these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, we take that idea of doing this in remembrance of Christ, and we build our entire idea of the Lord's Supper around it. When we take communion, we are supposed to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. That is deep biblical teaching, no question about it. Jesus said those words, do this in remembrance of me. It is so important to us as a church that it is actually inscribed on this table up in front of the auditorium, our communion table. Do this in remembrance of me. That's how important it is. But do you realize there's another part of communion? It isn't just about the reflection for what Jesus has done for us. There is a second part. Listen to the next verse. Verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you take communion, you are declaring your core conviction. When you take communion, you're preaching a sermon. I've always thought it'd be kind of interesting. David Bulwer is one of our elders. David, what do you think we ought to do about this? I just think it'd be kind of fun. If when we serve communion, we had people one by one stand up, turn around, and face the entire audience and take the Lord's Supper one at a time, wouldn't that be cool? 
David says, let's do it. We got an elder that says, let's do it. The preacher that thinks it's kind of cool. I think we should do it. There's some of you that are thinking, I don't want to do that. That'd be outside my comfort zone. Let's not even think about that. We won't do it. Even though the preacher thinks it's cool and an elder says, let's do it. We're not going to do that. But I want you to realize that when you take the Lord's Supper, you are declaring that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You are proclaiming that. You are preaching that message. So what happens if you're at odds with somebody else and they happen to be sitting down the row from you and they see you take communion and your life doesn't match what you're declaring with the piece of bread and the juice that's in your hand? You're weakening the power of the message. Your core convictions are necessary. They're necessary when you take the Lord's Supper. Now here's another one. In first service, we saw a lady respond at the invitation time. She was baptized into Christ. Baptism is one of those places where our core convictions line us up with our actions. And it's one of the coolest things you'll ever see. That's why in the book of Acts, when somebody became a believer, they were baptized. Baptism was a public declaration. It was a way of saying, I am all in. I'm going to do what the Lord has told me to do. That's why I love baptism so much. And do you know what happens when a person is baptized? They change their clothes. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now here's the best part of that teaching. You change your clothes in the baptistry. I don't mean you change your clothes before you get into the baptistry, though that happens. I mean you change your clothes in the baptistry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 would say, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You change your clothes. Now all of a sudden you're a reflection of Jesus Christ when you walk out of the baptistry. That's an amazing work. I changed my clothes in there. Here's an illustration of that in the realm of core beliefs. Before Tina and I moved to Montana, we were serving at a church in Missouri. It was a great church. Wonderful time there. We'd always tell people that we were occupationally thrilled and geographically miserable living in St. Louis. It was just, it was a great church in a miserable place. That's really what it was. I'm, I'm not a fan of St. Louis. One of the problems we had, though, even occupationally, was this senior minister I worked with that I have the utmost respect for. I would take a bullet for him today. He taught me so much, but I disagreed with him on this. He believed that if we were on staff at the church, we needed to wear a coat and tie every service that we had. So Sunday morning, I had to have on a coat and tie. Sunday evening, I had to have on a coat and tie. We had Saturday night service, had to wear a coat and tie. I hate, I am not exaggerating the sentiment when I say that to you, I hate wearing a tie. I have always hated wearing ties. I had to wear a tie when, oh, you know what I'm talking about. I had to wear a tie when I was working for the Bible college. I had to wear a tie every week at Harvester Christian Church. Here's why I hate wearing a tie. Because I have a 19-inch neck, and trying to find a shirt that you can button around a tree stump is not particularly easy. So you get that thing buttoned, and you can't breathe, you can't swallow, and then you put a noose around it and tighten that thing up just to drive the point home. I detest ties. 
When we moved to Montana, it took me about two years before I got delivered from the tie. And I can tell you, I have not gone back. And there are some well-meaning folks in the church that will say to me, people like Denise Schnockenberg will say to me, Phil, you should wear a tie more often. I just think preachers should wear a tie. I stick my tongue out at her and move on. I have been delivered and I am free in Christ not to do it. Now, here was the real problem, though. It wasn't the tie. I had to wear loafers when I wore the suit because often the suits didn't match cowboy boots. My core convictions are tied to cowboy boots, not loafers. I'm not comfortable in loafers. I don't look good in loafers. I don't like wearing loafers. I hate everything about loafers. I am not exaggerating the sentiment there again either. I'm not a loafer guy. I'm a cowboy boot guy. When we moved to Montana, the very first Sunday we were here, even though I had on a tie, I had on boots. There has not been a week that has gone by when I have preached at Libby Christian Church that I have not had on cowboy boots because when we moved to Montana, I got baptized in the culture that is Montana and I was delivered from loafers and I have not gone back. I have changed my clothes and I have not gone back. Five years ago, we were cleaning out our closet and I pulled out some dust-covered loafers from underneath. I don't even know what pile. And I said, honey, I don't think I need these anymore. Threw them out. I didn't take them to the mission store. I didn't give them to Goodwill. I threw them away. Took them to the dump because I don't think anybody should ever have to wear those things. Ever. I've been delivered. I have changed my clothes. The old is gone. The new has come. Same thing in baptism. You change your clothes. The old is gone. The new has come. You have been baptized in Christ. And your actions have to reflect that. That's the way it works. It's not a contradiction or a conflict with Ephesians chapter 2. It's just deeper teaching. You see, you are justified before men and you demonstrate your righteousness and your core convictions by what you do. Not just what you say, but by what you do. It is enough that you are justified before God by what Jesus did. Now you take it the next step and demonstrate that righteousness. If you don't, the book of James would say this. Go with me again to James chapter 2. Hard things like this. Verse 20, one more time. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. If you don't figure out this alignment, you are guilty of a dead faith. James would teach that there are three different types of faith. There's the dead faith that he's talking about right here. And I want you to make no mistake about this. He is not talking about an unsaved person. James is not talking about a person with no faith. He is talking about the person who claims to be a Christian and there is no alignment with the core conviction. That's a dead faith. Not the absence of faith. This is a person that has faith and chooses not to live it. Paul would write about the same thing in the book of Titus. You don't have to turn with me. Just listen to these words. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Boy, that's pointed. That is pointed. That's how the Apostle Paul would describe dead faith. 
James would teach that there's dead faith, but there's also a second type of faith. You saw this a couple weeks ago in James chapter 2. Listen to this. Verse 19 of chapter 2. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. There's a dead faith and then there's a demonic faith. And again, we're talking about people that believe in God. You hear them say it all the time. I believe in God. God's around me all the time. I live in Montana, for heaven's sakes. I'm surrounded by the beauty, the creation that is God. I believe in God. Well, good for you. So do the demons. They shudder. That's a demonic faith. You have to find out what a person believes about Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that you find out what a person believes about Jesus Christ, whether it's a core conviction, is based on how they live. What are their actions saying? What are they doing with that faith? Because if you can't see it, it may very well be a demonic faith or it may be a dead faith. But if you can see it, then it'll take you into the third type of faith that James lays out for us. That's a dynamic faith. A faith that's really doing something. Back in the book of Titus, Paul would talk about that as well. This is chapter 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's the justification of God. Now listen to what He does in verse 7. So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That's a dynamic faith. question everybody has to face is not only what are your public convictions, your private convictions, your core convictions, but what type of faith do you have? Is it a dead faith? Is it a demonic faith? Or is it a dynamic faith that's doing something on behalf of Christ? You might ask this question. It'd be natural to. How would I know? How can I determine what type of faith I have? I want to give you six questions to help with that as we close this out. We're going to put them up on the screen, and then I'm going to ask Terry to come back to them one by one after we're done. So if you're writing them down, if you're a note taker, write these down, because every person in this room needs to answer all six of these questions. Number one, has there been a time in your life when you honestly realized in your life that you were a sinner and admitted this to yourself and to God? Number two. Have you sincerely repented of your sin and turned from it? Or do you secretly hold on to your sin so that you can continue to enjoy it? Number three, have you trusted Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? That's a core conviction question. Number four, has there been a change in your life that is visible to those that know you best? That again is a core conviction question. Number five, do your actions reflect your convictions? Once again, that is a core conviction question. Now, I promised you six questions, and we'll get to the next one. This one, I believe, is incredibly important. And it takes you right to the heart of the matter and helps you really figure out how serious you are about Christ. Look at number six. Am I ready for the Lord's return? Am I ready for the Lord's return?
Let me share a story with you as we finish this. A fellow named Carl McCoon had a dream growing up of moving to Alaska. He wanted to go live in the wilds of Alaska. And not only did he want to live there and work there, he wanted to live out in the, the bush by himself. He wanted to see if he could survive. Growing up, obviously, it was impossible for him to do that. And when he got through with high school, the dream was now a possibility. He had to just choose what he was going to do with it. It took him a few years before he was bold enough to chase his dream. But when he was 23 years old, he moved to Alaska, got a job working on the pipeline. That allowed him to pay the rent and buy the baloney, if you will. But while he was there, what he was really doing was getting himself ready to go off on this grand adventure that he had always dreamed of. He wanted to go and live by himself, support himself, and see if he could sustain uh, a certain period of time by himself, on his own. It would take him 11 years before he could pull it off, but he did it. When he was 34 years old, he was dropped off out in the bush of Alaska with all of the things that he had planned to take with him. A year before he went, he quit his job just so he could work every detail out and make sure that he had every T crossed and every I dotted. He purchased the things he needed to purchase. He got all of his packs ready to go. He got everything squared away. He contacted the pilot that would take him out there. They made arrangements, and he loaded everything up, and off he went. Took with him one shotgun, two rifles, 1,400 pounds of provisions, all of his tents, all of his camping gear. Everything was with him. Pilot dropped him off, took off, and he was on his adventure now. By this point in his life, he had fallen in love with photography. So he had decided that he was going to take pictures of everything he could possibly take pictures of while he was out there in the bush. He had 500 rolls of film with him. For the first two months, he was burning up all of that film, taking pictures of everything he could. He took pictures of wildlife, took pictures of water, took pictures of the sky, took pictures of flowers, took pictures of everything. And two months into his journey, he realized that he had made a horrible mistake. He wrote these words in his journal. I should have used more foresight in planning my departure. You see, he had made no arrangements for the pilot to come back and pick him up. He was dropped off out in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, with no arrangements for the return flight. Two months into this whole journey, this whole adventure, it hit him. For the next few months, he continued to record things in his journal. Things about looking to the skies every day, hoping to see a plane fly over that he could signal to come down and land so he could get out of there. No plane ever came by. He recorded what it was like when he ran out of his provisions and had to hunt and forage for his very survival. And he did it as long as he could. Then he talked about what it was like when there were no more animals that he could hunt and the snow flew and he couldn't forage for anything more. One of his last recorded statements in his journal said this, This is a sad and abysmal way to die. Because he had made no arrangements for his departure. In the realm of faith, it's exactly the same thing. People don't spend nearly enough time thinking about their departure and what it's going to be like when they leave this earth. Whether they're going to leave and go right into the arms of Jesus or whether they have trusted themselves to a dead end. Literally, to a dead end. So question number six is incredibly important for every person. Are you ready for the Lord's return?
Measure that against your convictions, particularly your core convictions. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, it's interesting to me the process that many people go through in coming to know you. There'll be a period of time where they put their faith only in the realm of public convictions. They want people to believe a certain thing about them. And then it moves into the realm of private convictions where they really do believe, yet it's hard to get the alignment that's necessary to declare the righteousness that we have received. Father, it's exciting when you become a core conviction dwelling deep within our hearts. And when we get to a place that we're willing to demonstrate our relationship to other people, there's just nothing like it. So my prayer this morning is for those that are in those first two categories. Lord, would you move them to the third, to the realm of core conviction with you and help them live a dynamic faith that everyone can see. I pray, Father, that you'll help that happen beginning this morning and lasting forever. I pray, Father, that those that need to will respond to this invitation, will be faithful with whatever it is they bring to us, and I know you will as well. So, Lord, make people bold enough to respond within their needs. In Jesus' name, amen.